It's better to give than to receive. This is something we hear a lot in this season. And it might be better to give, but it's also important how you receive something, how you respond to something, right? Your reaction on your face when you open that present reveals a lot about how you feel about that gift, right? I have the privilege of having a face that doesn't look great or happy or joyful very much of the time, and so I had to learn how to train my face to look excited when I open something, because I don't want people who gave me something to be disappointed um, when they see my face or see your face drop when you open it, right? So how you receive something is important, and it matters, and your initial reaction to that thing pretty much shows how you really feel, because you didn't think it through. It's just your reaction, And so your initial reaction, even to news, whether it's good or bad, um, reveals the truth about you in that moment. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see three reactions, three responses, three ways that the birth of Jesus was received and what it revealed about those people and what we can learn from that and how we respond to it. So we're going to read from Matthew 2. Um, verses 1 through 12 this morning, and you can read along with me. Um, It's page 855 in your pew Bible, so if you have a Bible right in front of you, it's page 855. Um, We also have it in a YouVersion Bible app, so you can go to more and events and find our church, and the scripture will be there for you. Um, But this is Matthew 2. We're going to read 1 through 12 together, and then we'll go through it. And so, here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, Wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Now when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And so he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what the writer was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the, the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. And after hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. And entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. So this is probably the part of the Christmas story that you're familiar with. And so we're going to look at really in through the lens of their reaction to the, the news of Jesus being born. And so we're not really going to take it out of order, but we're not really going to go in order either. Um, We're going to sort of take it the reactions one person at a time. So that's kind of how we're going through it this morning. So first we see the reaction of Herod, right? Herod, Jesus is born. Herod is the king and wise men or magi come from the east. They're looking for the king of the Jews and they ask Herod where to find him, and Herod's response is to be deeply disturbed. 
right? Herod is troubled. He is angry. He is fearful. And the reason he is experiencing those things is because of his situation as the king. Herod knew that the Jews wanted to throw off the rule by the Romans who was ruling over that area at the time, and especially him. So Herod was not considered the rightful king of the Jews at this time because he was not from the line of David. And we saw last week in the prophecies about the Messiah and the king who would rule forever that it was very important for Israel and for the Jews to have a king who was from the line of David. And so if you know some of the history of Israel, this is an important thing to note, is that Herod was not from Jacob's line. So Jacob, um, God changed his name to Israel, had 12 sons. That's how we get the nation of Israel, and that connects to David in the line. So you can actually see that in Matthew chapter 1. If you read the first few verses of chapter 1, it'll give you all the names of all the people from um, Abraham through Jacob to David. But Herod is from Esau's line. And so if you remember, there were two brothers, Jacob and Esau, and things did not go well between them, right? They did not get along at all. So Esau short version is he kind of spurned his birthright and gave it over to Jacob. Um, Jacob took it and became the chosen one, got blessed by his father, and became what, be, what we know as the nation of Israel. And Esau was kind of just like an outcast. And so that's what they're thinking, that's what they're feeling when they think of Herod is they have this king who's from the line that they don't want to be a part of. And so Herod understands that. And so he knew that if somebody showed up and said, hey, where's the king of the Jews, that he was in trouble. His job was in jeopardy because if there was a king from the line of David, he would basically be the rightful ruler and not Herod. But we also get this line in here that says, everyone else was disturbed as well, the whole city of Jerusalem. And this is because of Herod and his reaction. Um, what you need to know a little bit about Herod is he was a vicious, bloodthirsty, paranoid ruler. Whenever he suspected someone of plotting to take his rule, he would have them killed. And this would include his wives and children if he didn't trust what they were up to. And so any threat to his throne whatsoever, any threat to his power, he reacted violently. And so the rest of Jerusalem was disturbed because this may lead to Herod taking action against them. And so we'll see kind of the follow-up to that in a minute. And so to find out what's happening, Herod assembles the, pri the priest and the scribes to understand what's happening and what he is doing. Now, notice the question he asks them. Because he calls them together and he doesn't ask, where will the king of the Jews be born or where was he born? Where, he says, where is the Christ? Where is the Messiah to be born? And so he uses a completely different term than they used. And so this helps us understand that at some level, Herod understood and connected the dots between these men showing up and asking where the king of the Jews was to be born and the Messiah. Right? He connected those two dots, so there would be a king of the Jews who would arrive, who would become the one who would restore Israel, which meant that Herod wasn't completely ignorant about what could be happening in this moment. He connected the dots to the Messiah, the one who would restore Israel, and I'm sure that this contributed to Herod's angry response, because he understood that if the Messiah was born, 
His rule and power, Herod's rule and power, are even more in jeopardy than they were before, which motivates what he does next. And we see his, the next thing in verses 7 and 8, where he secretly summons the wise men and he asks them the exact time that the star appeared. He wanted to know exactly when that showed up. And so he sent them to Bethlehem, which is where they know it is, and he says, go and search carefully, and when you find him, let me know so that I can go and worship him. And so Herod essentially secretly summons the wise men, asks where they're going, tells them to go and report back to him, but he is deceiving them. He wants to know the exact time the star showed up. He says he wants to worship, but I think he really wants to destroy. And so Herod pretended kindness, but he intended killing And I think at this point, the wise men believed what he said, that he did want to go and worship them, but he was actually plotting to murder this newborn king who we know is Jesus. And so Herod sends the wise men on this five to six mile journey to Bethlehem. But we see the impact of, what, of, of this conversation and what happens later in Matthew 2, 16. If you fast forward just a little bit, this is what Herod eventually does in response to this. It says, and then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men because they didn't go back and tell him what, was, what happened or where the, the child was, he flew into a rage and he gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. And so his reaction, his reception was, I've got to find out what it is. I'm going to pretend that I want to worship him so I can find out where he is, but he ends up killing lots of children because of his response. And so his, Herod's response was hatred and fear. Hatred of anything and anyone that threatened his self-centeredness, his rule, his power, his authority, his fear of a possible rival, even if it was a baby, right, who wasn't anytime soon going to take his place as king. And so the question for us out of Herod's response is, will you respond like Herod and receive Jesus with opposition? Now, Herod responded by being disturbed, afraid, threatened, and he responded to protect his power and authority. And if you're listening to this, you may be saying, well, I would never respond to Jesus this way, right? I would never be opposed to Jesus or to God's word, but I actually think it's more possible than we think it is. So if you are listening this morning room with us and you're, you're not yet a believer, Do you reject Jesus or the words of the gospel immediately with no thoughts, no research, no discussion with a real Christian? Do you let the media and the stereotypes determine how you see Jesus and Christianity? Are you predisposed to opposition because of what you think Christians are like? And if you are a believer listening to this, someone who has given their life to Christ, you may think, hey, I get a pass on this one because I would never do something like this. But anybody ever argued with God about what he asked you to do? Told him, I don't really want to do that, right? Or I'm not giving that up. That's not my plan. I'm having too much fun doing what I'm doing. I'm not changing for anything. 
And what is behind those statements is the same thing as what motivates Herod, right? It's power, it's control, and it's authority, right? Essentially saying, I want to keep all the power. I want to determine what is best for me. I want to keep doing what I want to do. And so are we afraid of what we will have to give up to follow Christ, either for the first time or to follow him more deeply and wholeheartedly? And so we respond basically in opposition and rebellion. We just keep doing what we want to do to our own peril. Or do we pretend to follow Christ at church and then do whatever we want once we leave the building the rest of the week? Do we say we'll follow Christ but giving little time and attention, which is a little more like passive opposition, right? Not outright. And so I think if we really think about it, these are challenging questions. I was challenged by these this week as well. And so my hope would be that we would take the time to see where we might be opposing God or opposing Jesus and the work that he wants to do in our lives. And so the next response we're going to look at is the priests and scribes. And so when I first read this, um, I sort of missed this one. But as I went back and read through it several times, I could see it. So this is verses, starts in verse 4 through 6. And it says, So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, this is just like we saw. Herod summons the wise men, um, met with the wise men, and then summoned the chief priests and scribes to get info on the Messiah. And so he asks, and they answer. He'll be born in Bethlehem. And then they give him a quote from what they call the prophet. And so this is a quotation from Micah, um, chapter 5, verse 2, which says this, um, Bethlehem, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient of times. Now, if you're listening, you'll notice it was mostly the same, but the ending was a little different. Matthew changes the ending, which we'll get to in a second. But in Micah, when we hear these verses it's much easier to see it is about the Messiah because he has the line about his origin being from long ago, right? From ancient times he existed and he is going to show up. Now, the ending here is a little different because this prophecy in Micah was um, historically paired with another messianic prophecy, a prophecy about the Messiah who would come from 2 Samuel 5, 2. So this is in the time of David. This is actually words spoken to David, and they connected these two together. So 2 Samuel 5, 2 says this, The Lord also said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over Israel. And so this connects the theme of shepherding and ruling to the line of David, which is how this comes together. And so we've seen that over and over. And so what we have here is actually a literal prophecy about who the Messiah would be and what would happen. And we have a literal fulfillment, right? When the Messiah is born, he'll be born in Bethlehem. And from what we read this morning, he was. He was born in Bethlehem, just like it said. Now, if you are listening carefully, you may say, I didn't see the reaction. I didn't see the response of the priests and scribes. It really doesn't seem to be there. 
And you would be right. There's nothing else about them in these verses. Nothing. Or even for a little while. But that's the point, I think, this morning, is they knew the prophecy about the Messiah. They knew what it was supposed to look like. They knew he was, what he was supposed to do. When they had studied it, they understood it. They could quote more prophecies than just this one. But when they're asked about it, when they see, hey, some people have come and think the Messiah has been born, the King of the Jews has been born, they do nothing. No response, no effort, nothing. They respond with essentially apathy, with what I'm calling religious indifference. Right? It seems strange and remarkable about how much they knew about the Messiah, yet when he's possibly arriving on the scene, they make no effort to go and see him. They don't join the caravan of the Magi. It's, look, it's five to six miles to Bethlehem to check this out. So imagine you'd been waiting for something for hundreds of years. Somebody thinks this person has been born, and your response is, eh, I'm good. I don't need to care about it. Right? The very thing that you've studied, you've essentially dedicated your life to, but they don't want to do it. So they knew the scriptures and they had all the answers to the questions, but that seems to be all they had. They had knowledge, no true belief, and nothing that moved them to action. Their formal knowledge of the scriptures did not lead them to seeking and following the Messiah. And so the question for us is, will you receive Jesus just like the scribes and and priests with religious indifference? I think this one might be a bigger struggle for a lot of us, especially those who have been believers for a long time. And I think this doesn't even necessarily happen maliciously or even intentionally, but it happens slowly over time of going to church, of going to Sunday school, of hearing Bible studies. Those things begin to become routine And it can become something that we just do, right? Kind of like going through the motions. And so when we're challenged by God's word, when we learn something new, when he calls us to go deeper, to do something more, we respond essentially with apathy or indifference. Or we might say, I know the answers. I've heard the stories of Jesus. I know the gospel. I'm going to heaven. I'm good. So I'll just coast and I'll just take it easy. Or we know that God wants more from us, to trust Him more, to open our lives up more, but we are hesitant because we are comfortable, and we just want to continue being comfortable. Or what I think is the most dangerous reaction, similar to them, is to think that knowledge of God and Christ equals faith and salvation. Christianity is not about what you know but about who you know and what he has done for you. Having the answers to the test doesn't get you into heaven. Not by itself. It has to be partnered with faith in the knowledge that Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he sacrificed himself on the cross in our place so that we could overcome sin and death. It is our belief and trust in Jesus that saves us, not our knowledge. Actually, in reality, it takes very little knowledge to become a Christian. Right? You just have to believe in that, what Christ has done for you. And that faith that we have should move us to action, to living out the implications of our freedom from sin and death because of Christ. And 
ironically in this story, we're going to see what that looks like in the most unlikely group in the story, the wise men, right? So let's go through the reaction of the wise men going back to verse 1. They go to, from the east to find the king of the Jews. They go to ask Herod where he is. Um, we saw the star rising and we came to worship him. And so they come, and you may be asking, how did they know this was supposed to happen? How did they connect the star to the coming of the king of the Jews way over in Bethlehem? And so that's a good question. Um, so I'm going to give you a short version of the answer here. So it's possible they gleaned this knowledge strictly from studying the stars as magi, one of the terms that represents magi is um, essentially specialist in astronomy. Um, they studied the stars and knew a lot about them, at least for this time, as much as you could know 2,000 years ago, which is for us is like a drop in the bucket compared to what we know now. But they studied those, so it's possible they just knew that. But it's more likely that they had some exposure to a prophecy about the king of the Jews from Jews who had traveled through and who had taught what they were doing. And so many people connect this, what's happening with the Magi, to something that happens in the book of Numbers with a guy named Balak, the king of Moab, and Balaam, who was similar to them, a magician, seer, prophet. And so what basically happens is Balak, um, or Balak, or however you want to say that, just say it with confidence. That's all you got to do, right? Calls and says, hey, I'm trying to battle the Israelites is who he's battling, so I'm going to call Balaam. He's going to come, and he's going to curse them so that I can beat them. And so this is a, actually, it's actually a pretty funny story. If you want to read this, it's in Numbers around 24. And so Balaam goes to do this, but God tells him along the way, you're not going to curse them. You're only going to bless them. And so in one of the blessings found in Numbers 24, 16 and 17, this is what it says. It says, a star will come from Jacob and a scepter will arise from Israel, saying, a star will appear when the king, when the Messiah would appear. And so this was a well-known messianic prophecy. And so it's likely they saw the star and connected it to the prophecy. Now, it does say they came to worship him, but this does not necessarily mean they recognized that Jesus was divine, that he was the son of God, but they could have just come to pay homage to a new king. Um, it also says, where is the king of the Jews, which I think is an important distinction, not the one who would become king of the Jews. So unlike Herod and the way that he became king, Jesus was the king from the beginning, from the moment he was born. He was the king of the Jews. And then we jump down to verse 10, which is where we see them again. And it says, when we saw the star... They were overwhelmed with joy, and entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so they saw the star, and they reached their destination, and they were overwhelmed with joy. Their journey was complete. They were in the presence of the king, and they entered the house and fell to their knees, and they worshipped him. Now, I don't think they truly understood the fullness of what Jesus was to become, but what a contrast we see in these men compared to what we saw from Herod and the religious leaders, all Jews who should have known what was happening. 
The ones who should have been the most excited and understanding of Jesus' birth are nowhere to be found. But the wise men come from far away, not quite knowing what they're looking for, but they come with faith that they are being led to the newly arrived king of the Jews. And when they arrive, they are full of joy and worship. There is excitement and gift-giving to honor him. And their pursuit and dedication is a great example of the pursuit of Jesus. Their dedication is something to strive for, a wholehearted pursuit of the newborn king. And so our question is on this one, will you receive Jesus with dedicated worship? Will you see the greatness of who Jesus is? Will you be willing to seek him out, to track down the truth about him if you're not yet a believer? Will you trust what you know to be true over the objections of others? Right, because the wise men didn't know everything about Jesus and about what he was to do, but they knew enough to know that he was important and worth the time and effort to seek out. So do you see Jesus as valuable enough to spend your time and your energy to seek him out, to look for him, to listen for, to seek, to pursue him on a daily basis? Right? And they brought him gifts. What gifts do you have to bring to Jesus, to give to Jesus? And we know when we talk about this a lot that the message of the gospel says that we are all broken sinners and technically we have nothing that is of any worth to Jesus in itself. But in light of his life and his sacrifice for us, essentially what we do is we give ourselves, we give our life over to him in response. And so that is our gift back to him for what he has done for us. And so are you overwhelmed with joy when you hear of and meet with Jesus? And do you give him the energy and the effort he deserves, just like these wise men? And so as we kind of pull all of this together, we see a lot of contrast in the responses to Jesus here. We have Herod, the wicked king, who contrasts with Jesus, the born righteous king of Israel. We have the great distance that the Magi traveled to visit Jesus, contrasting the short distance that the Israel's leaders wouldn't travel to go see Jesus. We have the genuine worship of the wise men contrasted with the fake worship of Herod and the lack of worship by the tribes and, and priests. We have the Magi's sensitivity and responsiveness to divine guidance to contrasted with the insensitivity and unresponsiveness of Israel's leaders. We have the apathy of the leaders, the wise men's curiosity, and Herod's fear. And so our goal is to not be afraid, to not be threatened by Jesus and what he might ask or demand of us. Because what, we will give, what he will give us in return will be far better than anything we could ever get on our own. Our goal is not to be apathetic or indifferent or complacent or being, being content with gaining knowledge but not living out the full life that God promises us with obedience. Our goal is to be dedicated, to be joyful, to worship Jesus who has come into the world to light the way to salvation. 
And that's what we see here, right? It's, it's a light of salvation that begins with a star. So that's actually how we're going to end this morning, is I want to just trace this theme of light, of coming into the world of salvation, to kind of pull all of this together. We saw part of this in Numbers, but in Numbers we saw that a star will come from Jacob to rule over all things. And in Matthew, we see this star appear and draw the wise men to Jesus. The light of the star brings them to him. And then in Isaiah chapter 60, we see it again in verses 1 through 6. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth and total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. Raise your eyes and look around. They all gather and come to you. Your sons will come from far away and your daughters on the hips of nursing mothers. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will tremble and rejoice, because the riches of the sea will become yours, and the wealth of the nations will come to you. This next verse is going to sound very familiar. Caravans of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah. All of them will come from Sheba. They will carry gold and frankincense and proclaim the praises of the Lord. So we have in Isaiah a group of people riding camels, bringing gold and frankincense to proclaim the praise of the Lord. Right? But what else is in these verses? The world is in darkness, in total darkness. But the glory of the Lord will shine into it, and this glory will draw the nations to the Lord. Right? And we, in the darkness of our sin, the total darkness that none of us could ever do enough to see or to be saved, but God sent a light into the world to help us see the reality of our situation and to save us from the darkness of our sin and death. And in Matthew, we see this kind of lived out. We see the nations represented in the wise men being drawn to the light of the star to worship Jesus. Right? Because it wasn't the Jews who we would expect in reading the Bible to be the first to worship Jesus. It was the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the nations who would come, symbolizing that Christ would be the Savior, not just of the Jews, but of the entire world, that all would be able to come. And so we have Jesus, his birth marked by a star, and later he would say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And so this theme of light, of the star, of Jesus being a light to the world for salvation, finds its completion in Christ. He is the light of the world that comes, and he defeats the darkness through his death on a cross, giving us light and life. And the nations, the world is saved through the light of the world. And so the way that we conquer our fear and doubt of trusting in Jesus is to realize and remember that he is the one, the only one, who can give us what we think we can only get on our own. And the way we overcome indifference is by remembering that Jesus is worthy of worship and remembering why he is worthy. Because he is the light of the world who came in to deal with our sin and darkness and brokenness and give us life. 
as we trust in Him and give our lives over to Him, He gives us that fullness back so that we can worship Him and praise Him and live the way that He has called us to live. And so as we think of the star this year, and I think, if I'm right, there's rumors that this sort of star, potentially this star thing might be visible to us this year. Um, so if you haven't looked up Christmas star appearing in the sky, you might want to look that up because it's supposed to be happening. It's the way the planets align. I'm not sure this is 100% what it was, but it's a good guess. And so it's interesting that that's happening. But to remember that Jesus is the light of the world who has come to save. So that's what we're selling. So when you think of the star, when you hear the star, think of the light who has come to save. Will you pray with me this morning? God, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you that you are the light of the world, that you sent your son into the world to be born as a baby, vulnerable and seemingly weak and helpless. But that baby becomes the Savior. He becomes the one who would sacrifice everything for us so that we could have life so that we could overcome the darkness of our sin and brokenness and pain and hurt and selfishness and self-centeredness, but that we do that through you, through the love that you have for us in sending your Son. And so yes, Christmas and this season marks the beginning of that journey of Jesus being born and sent to the earth, but we also want to celebrate the ending, the victory over sin and over death that gives us life. So let us trust in him. In your name I pray. Amen.